tonight on the Weekend IndyCar Listener Q&A brought to you by you and all of the fun, serious, wacky, and mildly caustic questions that get fired in every week. Uh, thanks again to everybody for a whole bunch of wonderful birthday notes. Some of them a little spicy and some of them just awesome. So had a delightful Monday, the 7th, Pearl Harbor Day, my birthday. Of course, that's what it is. Uh, my wife, we had physical therapy and chemotherapy. And I can tell you that she kicked so much behind at both Boy, uh, just so in love with her. Like, she's just amazing. <laughs> she really is. Um, physical therapy in particular, she was just on an absolute high. There was uh, multiple high fives in the car driving to chemo with her recounting what she did. Uh, normally, I'm inside sequestered in a uh, kind of walled-off uh fishbowl of a room and with the new restrictions here in california we are not uh, allowed inside so it's just the client so i didn't get to see it but long story short she uh boy amazing stuff that she did discovered some new things and just big high five so so proud of her had a wonderful night when we got home uh so anyways just yeah Riding, riding a wave of happiness, y'all. We'll mention one other thing quickly before we get going. Might have mentioned last episode, the one before. Got episode 1000 coming up here. I think this is going to be 993. I don't know. Me not count good. But 1000 is going to be here in a week, two weeks, probably before Christmas, maybe. And so I've decided that it's just going to be epic stories told by friends of mine friends of yours and just meant to have fun so been busy for i don't know since late last week maybe starting to collect some tales uh plenty more calls to make but so far uh, this is bridging both open wheel and sports cars pretty cool too because you come to find that a lot of folks who you might know is say a sports car driver well they have some f1 in their background or otherwise or vice versa a lot of crossover so our man alan mcnish chris nifle uh indy car driver sports car driver for chris f1 junior open wheel and sports car for alan some guy named danny sullivan oh man he, there's some stories he told that he called back after it's like you can't use this one and I'm like, dude, come on. Nope. Yeah, I'm sorry. Now that I thought about it, can't use that one. Uh, one of Chip Ganassi's first three race car drivers, Justin Bell. Uh, good pal of the show, Ryan Eversley. A good friend of mine, team manager, Supreme Formula, former uh, F1 chief mechanic, Tony Dow, Wayne Taylor. Uh, spoke with him he called back as well it was like so what are you going to use from the conversation because i'm not sure all of them are really meant for public consumption i'm like oh it's your fault man so anyways got some more coming here uh gonna talk to jim busby tomorrow a uh, good friend of the show mark blundell indycar and f1 driver supreme plus sports cars and uh, i'm gonna work down the list bobby ray hall is on the call list and yeah i'll see how many i can get so just tell you 
there's going to be a lot of bleeping <laughs> in the episode because uh, there's a lot of words that you certainly would not use in church on a Sunday. So, anyways, been fun gathering some of these stories and look forward to getting that ready for you here, hopefully before Christmas. Last thing to mention, Cooper Tires. They're really good friends. So appreciative of them. The Justice Brothers, oh, equal appreciation for all that they do. They're mighty, mighty fine automotive chemicals and lubricants that I've used since I was about 15 or 16 years old. TorontoMotorsports.com and then also Bell Racing Helmets USA. I, I, what we, I hear a music bed. That means we're getting rolling with your questions here. And to kick things off, we are going to ask our pal, Nathan Snowman. How you doing, Nathan? And Harishi Dishbond. How you doing, Harishi? Two questions here. Same subject, a beloved subject. Since Donald Davidson just announced his retirement, who would you pick to replace him? Nathan says, I think a giant IMS Jeopardy tournament may be needed. I think you're onto something there, pal. And uh, Harishi says... Many Donald Davidson questions coming, I assume. Add this to the list. What's your favorite hashtag you personally memory or interaction with Mr. Davidson? I'll go with Nathan's question first. Two people come to mind. And I don't know if anyone has the genuinely encyclopedic volume of Indianapolis 500 knowledge that Mr. Davidson has. It's a bit of a duh Pruitt statement. Donald has spent the vast majority of his life as a historian, learning every little thing, seeking the truth, verifying rumors and whatnot about some old thing about whatever, visiting places uh, to get more nuance and understanding of things of old-timey whatnots. Really, imagine that. This is the thing, Nathan, uh, that just, oh, boy. Honestly, it's a bit like Robin Miller, right? Who, who, who can replace Robin in terms of everything that he knows and has lived and experienced and remembered? There's nobody, absolutely not a single person. That's the place that Donald holds as historian. There's, there's just him. So, the two people who I know who have the next best equivalent of encyclopedic knowledge, but I can't say if it's the since 1909 type span that Donald offers. Uh, one is my pal, the pal of many, that being Dave Scoggins. Dave is a uh, boy. When we are sitting in the media center and have an arcane question, granted, it's usually back in the 50s or 60s, maybe 70s, but we will yell over to Dave and with nothing to draw from, no books, no, he doesn't really even use the internet, um, Facebook a little bit. Good old Dave is just the, no, on the fourth day of practice for the 62 event when so-and-so went out in the number 19, such and such. Uh, yeah, I know they said that he did 11 laps, but I've looked and I've reached, and it's only, it was only 10. And you go, how? How do you know that? Why do you know that? 
how did that stick in your brain? Um, that's Dave. So Dave Scoggins, I would definitely say uh, he would be a, a prime person to consider. Another one, maybe, again, similar-ish era. I don't know how far the knowledge goes back, but our man Steve Shunk as well. I mean, just, boy, ridiculous. What I would probably come up with for a proper answer, Nathan, and I'm sure it's the same conclusion that many have come to, there's no single person that can do this. There will most likely need to be a network of experts. And I I mean, I know a lot about certain eras and decades and such, but I'm sure that there are others who know more. Uh, I know that there's somebody that has every single thing about the 1930s locked away like a steel trap in their mind. I just can't think of anyone who can talk about the day number one all the way up to current like Donald can. So that's why I think there there's this is not a singular, this is a plural. Who replaces how many replaces him? Uh it's going to have to be many. Uh because no one's done what he's done and dedicated their life to trying to know everything. Uh Harishi, your question. I've always enjoyed Donald's company have not had as much time with him as I would love understanding that until I moved into the media 15 ish, however many years ago, 13, 14 years had no reason to really know Donald or interact. And so whatever amount of time we might get during the month of May, or if I've had questions for certain calls, um, it's been something that I genuinely enjoy the, the, I don't know if it's a favorite, it's just one of those things where I enjoy Donald because if I have things that I am blind to or don't know about when it comes to general history of the Indianapolis 500, he's the ultimate resource, right? One of my things that I kind of specialize in, maybe, one of the things that is unique to what, how I do what I do is the technical and engineering side, the car side. And oddly enough, who's the absolute last person <laughs> to call when you want to know about anything related to a vehicle that competed at the Indy 500 uh, beyond the colors beneath the skin? That's Donald Davidson. And that's not said as a negative. He's the one who says that. Like, please... If you've got a question about which size turbocharger was used on this vehicle, whenever, please do not call me. Uh, Heck, if you just simply want to know beyond when was the first turbocharged car to win the Indianapolis 500, that being 1968, Bobby Unser. Again, you might not want to ask him what happened from 68 to 69. Talking to him about engines, wings, whatever um that's just not his either forte or interest so there've been a lot of kind of comical conversations Rishi, which is what i'm uh wanting to use as my answer to your question i've done how many years now i think five years maybe 
I think the last five Indy 500s, I have contributed stories to the Indy 500 program. Beautiful keepsake thing. Um, I, it, it means a lot to me to have been selected to contribute to that. Knowing that one of the things that I do that don't many people don't do these days as reporters and writers, which is the technical side, ding, 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 surprise, every year, <laughs> the thing they ask me to write about, at least if I do multiple stories, I can guarantee you one of them, it'll be on the technical side. So this year it was about the aero screen. Last year uh, it was about the 50th anniversary of Wings, and not the first time wings were used, but really the explosion of wings at the speedway. And so just a little bit of a funny back story here. Donald, known as the the living embodiment of all Indy 500 knowledge, obviously on the payroll of IMS and whatnot, he's been used in a editing role, a proofing role for many years. And so what would happen is I would get a phone call from Donald saying, hi, Marshall, I've, I've got your latest story or your latest whichever for the such and such. And I just felt a little bit bad, Rishi, because more often than not, the only things he could really comment on would be the items that were general. Uh, so-and-so drove this car that had this unique thing that had never been seen at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway before. So Donald would call and say, so in the paragraph in which you write the driver so-and-so did this thing in this vehicle, um, I can tell you that he or she or whomever was extraordinary, and were you aware that they did this and did that? And I'd say, no, that's, thank you, that's incredible. And then there would ultimately come the, well, I don't really have much to to offer uh, in terms of the rest of what was written because, honestly, I don't really know. And it just felt weird, and this is a guy who I look up to, right? Just amazing, and it's just weird being in a little blind spot, if you want to call it that. So it was just this little kind of funny dance each year, Rishi, of... Hi, I've been asked to do this, and so I have to do it, so I'm calling you, and there's this thing that I saw you wrote in this here, and maybe uh, I could add some context to that, uh, or maybe you got this piece wrong, and I would suggest that you might consider saying this about the driver instead of that, but as for the rest, I'll just have to take your word on it, basically. So those calls were quite fun and funny, and it was just a little dance that had to be done. And he acknowledged it, and I acknowledged it, and we did it. And you could tick the box and say, he has called Pruitt, offered whatever, and Lord, we just hope the rest is accurate. So those are the things that uh, I have enjoyed quite a bit. Uh, and it's just the human side, right? Donald's encyclopedic side. That's what everybody knows. Just the ability to talk person to person and admit, hey, Donald, I don't know about this thing. What can you tell me, brother? I don't know. You know, you're the guy. I'm not the guy. You're the guy. And at least for the technical stuff, he just had to say, look, I don't know. <laughs> That's not me. Uh, so are, are we good? Are we done? Yes. Thank you. And, uh, there you go. Um, other thing, too, which is fun, uh, some, as someone who tends to work late uh, each night during the 
Annapolis 500 during practice and whatever else. Uh, more during the practice days. I mean, obviously everyone's working late on qualifying weekend or day of the race, but I'm more often than not the last person or one of the last people to leave each night. And so I get to listen to Donald and his, I forget the name of it, the voice of the Speedway or Gasoline Alley or whatever it might be, the show that he has done forever, uh, the Colin show to talk about whatever, whatever. And so usually it'd be a pretty small audience of whomever the producer is, maybe Kevin Lee, who's teeing him up, uh, or someone else, and Donald. And so while trying to write or edit videos or photos or whatever, sometimes instead of listening to music as a distraction, um, just kind of pick up the conversation being held there. And despite being a couple rows back and not involved with anything he was doing, he would always make a point to uh, at least the first night that I was there, he would see me to come over and say hello. Again, I'm usually head down oblivious to the world, but stop by and say hello, just class and grace. And when he would leave, would, you know, wave and say goodbye. And then each day afterwards, hello and goodbye. I know there's, it's that might not sound like much. Just tells you, though, that this is a man who understands uh, social bonds and so appreciative of him. Wish I lived in Indy so I could really be immersed in all uh, of Donald's vast knowledge in stories for the past many decades, but <sighs> maybe I'll get a chance to uh, sp- spend some more time with him if he is around just in a non-working capacity um, that maybe our schedules did not allow previously. Let's go to another a trio of questions. And for the new listeners, the, the somewhat recent listeners of the show... Uh, first of all, I refer to it as my unpolished turd. I really don't edit out my garbage flubs and whatnot. You've heard many already. Uh, I sound like I'm drunk sometimes. I'm not. I'm actually drinking coffee this time instead of beer like last. And we often open the show with a one or two bigger topics before getting to kind of sporadic ones and fire through those at a faster rate, hopefully. So after the uh, Donald Davidson opener... And I'll have to admit that more than once uh, with the mild version of dyslexia that I deal with, um, I jumble letters and I know I refer to him as David Donaldson more than once. Um, And so I'm surprised. I don't think I just did that uh, throughout the entire conversation about him. So achievement, maybe it's coming to me. Uh, We are going to three questions. Rishi's back with one. Our pal Jordan Darwin and also Jim Barnett. Uh, we're going to go with Jim, who opens up saying, "MP Roger Penske embraced the uh, the message that Black Lives Matter sent this summer." It's an interesting viewpoint. It says he understands the potential of new fans uh, that people of color represent. It was announced that he will be mentoring the upstart minority-owned USF 2000 team, Force Indy. I happen to know that the team owner, Mr. Reed, Rod Reed, is a very competent business owner. It says, since the team will initially be located in Concord, North Carolina, I'm wondering what the word mentoring will mean. He asks, will Penske personnel be working side-by-side with Force Indy Mechanics building the car? Will they help set the car up for race day? 
look after spring rates and damper settings, ride height, toe in, toe out, camber. Well, they put it on their seven post shaker rig. I'm hoping they will be hands-on to give this team the best opportunity for success. Just going to share this up front, Jim, because I always like to get these little things out of the way. As someone who lives in a household that I guess you could say technically is half black, half white, but admittedly it's a little more black uh, on a daily, hourly basis. Um, the word minority, I'd love for that sucker to get put in the rearview mirror, just forgotten. Um, I've mentioned that to our friends at the Race for Equality and Change at, at the series at the Speedway because it keeps popping up in their verbiage. And interestingly enough, I've had a res- response back saying, yeah, actually, we need to get rid of that. And then it popped up in the most recent one as well, just from the sense that uh, we're Americans. Um, we tend not to, ref- I, at least to, in my estimation, we really aren't the break people down by whether they are a minor part of America or major part of America, like we're Americans. (laughs) So I realize that we are many when it comes to uh, origins, ethnicity, diversity, and so on, but I've never, yeah. Anyways, I just share with you that the word minority is not necessarily received by people who might be in the statistical minority. It's really an awesome thing to be painted with. Um, So, just wanted to share that because it always sticks out to me when I see minority. Um, here's what I can tell you. Uh, Force Indy is a Roger Penske production. It is meant to change into a Rod Reed NXG Youth Motorsports production, but it is not at the moment. Um, here's what we will just say that is acknowledged as truth and reality while knowing that some of this is due to promotions and positioning. Um, Roger Penske, and I'm not saying he picked up the phone and placed the order, but I'm just using his name since he owns the team, owns IndyCar, owns all this. Roger Penske ordered two brand new Tatus USF 17, USF 2000 cars. Ordered engines from Elite. Elite engines. Our pal, Steve Knapp, 1998-8500 Rookie of the Year. Uncle Steve. Um, Ordered tires from Cooper. What? Cooper. Yes. Spares. This, that, and the other. Uh, Apportioning a transporter and pit tugger and tools and 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 the creation of force indy is a direct result of roger penske saying i am going to invest the money to start this usf 2000 team call it the house team it's often what such things have been referred to in the past Uh, if we want to go back to the first year of Indy Lights, when it was called, its original name, the American Racing Series, ARS. There was a house car, house entry, and that was one owned by the series, and they placed a variety of drivers in it. 
not only to help pad the the grid a little bit, but also to cycle some drivers through, get them in and maybe interested, maybe put in some cool names from other series. But it was their car, uh, their money, their choice. This is Roger Penske starting a USF 2000 team, period, full stop. It has been named Force Indy, period. There was ongoing debate as to what it would be called. Should it be branded as a as Team Penske? I never expected that to be done, Jim, because I think that would have... If Team Penske is going to enter, enter Indy Lights as Team Penske, I don't think anyone has a complaint. Andretti Autosport is there. Chip Ganassi Racing basically got its start uh, as an Indy Lights entrant. Um... IndyCar teams have been in Indy Lights over the years. No issue there. Andretti, I realize, has been in USF 2000 as well. But at the bottom rung, the very first level of the road to Indy, Team Penske, I think that might be a bit foreboding. So I understand the reason why, Jim, that they ultimately said, let's pick something else that's not even, no one's ever going to think Team Penske. This will be presented as a standalone effort by name alone, right? You hear the name, you have no thoughts of any other team in IndyCar. You certainly have one of a former Formula One team, uh, but definitely not IndyCar. Um, but let's be clear, and this is not a negative towards Mr. Reed. This is Roger Penske prov- providing the seed money to start this race for equality and change road to Indy team. Mr. Reed has been positioned as the team owner. I cannot tell you if and what business arrangement does or does not exist, meaning uh, you will buy it from us, right? These cars and the this and the that, and, you know, call this a a loan, uh, a long-term loan with very favorable repayment uh Uh, terms and again i don't know i can only tell you that as i've heard for quite some time roger penske team penske purchased vehicles all the necessary assets and spares and is apportioning additional equipment you would need to get a team to and from uh, the races and run for a full season Um, another aspect as well and this is uh, another thing you mentioned here this team will be run at least for the first season. I don't know if it's meant to be more seasons beyond that, but at minimum, this team will be run by Team Penske personnel. Uh, Everything I've heard, and I apologize if this was all in a press release that I've forgotten, um, our man John Booslog, Myron Booslog, who has been with Team Penske for 100,000 years, who got his start in junior open-wheel racing, um, same series I did, Super V, the SCCA Super V. He got his start, I think, a year or two before I did. Uh, Myron, uh, coming off of being one of the team leaders of Acura Team Penske, back-to-back IMSA champions, uh, Myron is coming over to look after Force Indy. And I don't know the exact number, but I do know that a couple of Acura Team Penske mechanics from 2020 have been apportioned to force Indy. They are meant to be the heart and core of 
this program to start because there is no NXG youth motorsports infrastructure in terms of a experienced pro level racing operation and staff to step up and make use of these brand new cars, et cetera, et cetera. So the plan right now, and it might sound weird knowing that this is a diversity initiative is for IndyCar IMSA veterans uh, to come in and get the team up and running and established and mentor. And this is the key part. And I think this is the transition point, which I don't know when the, the jump off is meant to take place, but Myron and the rest of the crew are meant to train some of the new African-American hires uh, that were made and develop this into a team that can, in time, uh, be self-sustaining as a uh, non-Penske-supported uh, endeavor. Now, that's from the crew team operational side. On the financial side, again, I don't know. I read, I think like many of you possibly, that there will be sponsor announcements coming up. I hope that they pay for the whole season. It's, you know, it's not inexpensive. It's not stupid expensive. I mean, if we're talking if we're talking a full season of USF 2000 for a single car and, you know, all the tests, the the series tests, but maybe not a lot of uh you know, additional tests on top of that. I'm told the annual budget, good team, right? Not cut rate team, but a proper team that you're going to go win races with. Eh, 300,000, 350,000. It's about the range. Uh, might be somewhere in the middle, 325 or so. That's for a single car entry. Do they have sponsors lined up to pay for all of that? I don't know. But at least to get them on the grid, and get going and create a team that can then hopefully have sponsorship. Uh, Jim, uh, this is all a Roger Penske thing. So I know that it is important to RP to have Rod Reed, who they believe in massively, for him to be the figurehead. And so your your note about knowing that he is a competent business owner. Um, I can only assume that as he gets up to speed on running this team, um, we will see, as you mentioned here, uh, his competence and everything come forward. I know that he's had racing team involvements before. I know he's done a lot of things. I am just unaware of, oh, when he ran that, again, Super V, Atlantic, uh, you name it, team, um, and you know it did well. I'm not aware of that side of his experience. If that is there, then I'm just simply ignorant and do not know about it. But for how things have been presented to me to close here, uh, this has really been Team Penske is going to the USF 2000 series. Its name is Force Indy. It has hired some black employees, which is awesome. Engineering side, uh, mechanical side. Uh, I believe Bud Denker told me about uh, marketing and promotion side as well, possibly. So there are very real goals 
of this team looking like and being the exact diversity initiative that the race for equality and change is meant to be. It is just not something that is going to look like that to start. And I can't imagine anyone would have a problem with that simply because this is in its most basic form meant to be an academy. It is meant to be something where you have drivers, you have mechanics, engineers, all the necessary crew who come in and hopefully learn a lot, become very good at their jobs, and then get hired by other teams. Indy Pro 2000, Indy Lights, Indy Car, you name it. Uh, drivers as well. Just think of this being really something that is meant to replenish itself with talent and for that talent to filter upwards into the top rung of open wheel racing in America. That's the goal. And I know I might be overstating the obvious for those who know this whole thing, but it's not to be a kick-ass USF 2000 team. And <laughs> that that's where it stops. This is meant to be an academy, uh, like the Red Bull Academy not too long ago and some others where, hey, um, come in, learn, kick ass, go uh, get that job doing something and keep moving up the ladder. And we're going to keep trying to train and keep this ladder full and busy with folks stepping up and then hopefully reaching back and uh, bringing some more along. So last note here, I really hope they don't put it on the seven post shaker rig. That's my only, my only fear with this. Uh, having known about this for a while now, Jim is you go, hey, cool, Team Penske slash Force Indy. Uh, they're going USF 2000 racing. Awesome. Please don't bring the full capabilities of Team Penske to bear because you're going to destroy USF 2000 if you do that because nobody in USF 2000 has access to those kinds of resources. The amount of money that it costs to go rent, go do a single day of a seven-rig uh, or seven rig seven post shaker testing i mean <laughs> yeah uh you blow up the entire economics of the series so i hope they don't i really hope they don't uh Hrishi, you said hey let's make it the weekend road to indy this week so it's great to hear about force indy anything you can add beyond what we read last week any word on drivers says miles row tested uh usf 2000 car but i don't know of any other uh, up-and-coming black drivers says probably my own ignorance. Um, one other thing on Force Indy, uh, has the team looked into recruiting from historically black colleges and universities uh, and mentioned that he knows of a couple that have Formula SAE programs they could recruit from. I don't know on the latter part here, Hrishi. It is, let's see, how do I phrase this in, in a polite way? I don't get a lot of time speaking with Bud Denker because he's a very busy man and he runs a multi-billion dollar company. So the amount of questions that pile up versus the amount of opportunities I have to speak with him and then the amount of time he has to spend on the phone, there's always a discrepancy. So it's not a complaint. That's not a criticism. There's nothing bad there. It's just like, hey, this guy who's super influential and kind of has made the road to Indy, I'm sorry, the uh, race for quality and change happen, uh, He's hard to get a hold of. And when you do get him, it's uh, I got four minutes for you before I'm walking to a meeting. So 
uh, HBCU is certainly uh, would be a brilliant angle, and I hope to speak with him about that or possibly Coach Reed uh, in his absence. The question about Miles Rowe is an interesting one. That's why I wanted to grab this one here, Rishi, and we won't spend too long on this. Um, Miles was, quote, discovered by Will Power. We know that, or hopefully you know that. Power saw him, competed against him, local kart track in North Carolina. Miles, I believe it's North Carolina. Miles kicked his butt, and he was like, whoa, <laughs> this kid's a you know pretty amazing. Uh, time went by. He had it in the back of his mind that, hey, if I ever had a chance or a way to help him, I would like to. Uh, so, frankly, credit power for helping to kickstart the whole race for equality and change kind of racing team concept. Uh, Power and I spoke. Power didn't want to go straight to Penske because he's his boss. And the idea that he had would basically be asking his boss for money, not given to him, but to someone else to try and test Miles. He felt very uncomfortable about that conflict of interest, potentially totally get that. So he said to me, Hey, you know, Willie T ribs, right? Yes. Could you call him and ask him to talk to RP and mention that power, uh, has this kid miles Rowe, who'd be the perfect first candidate for the race for equality and change you just announced. So just giving you a little bit of the backstory. Cause it was a little bit funny. Uh, will did not want to call RP. So a little bit of a workaround. Um, I said, yes, I can do that, but hold on just a sec. And so I just paused power, added a call, added Willie T, and the two of them started talking. Uh, so it was a fun three-way call. Now power, because he's a little bit silly in the brain, didn't remember apparently that he and Willie T had met. So power was convinced that he didn't know him at all. And Willie T was like, yeah, you remember I met you here at this thing? And we did it. And power's like, Oh yeah. I don't think he, I still don't think he remembered, but they got on famously. I said, power, tell Willie T what you're thinking and how he can help a little backstory here as well. Uh, when they were thinking about the race for equality and change, uh, a couple months before, however much pointed time before they made it happen. Willie T was one of the first folks that reached out to RP reached out to him directly. So there was already a connection on the specific topic between RP and wt so those these two talk willie t says yep supposed to talk with rp tomorrow they speak rp says yeah that's good uh uh i'll i'll talk to power or whatever at the next race uh they didn't end up connecting at the next race but they did at the one following uh rp said great let's get this going gets the cape brothers to bring a car out miles tests they're all impressed they do another test with him and we're impressed again. I want to give you that quick little backstory and mandarin thing here, Rishi, because the thing I've heard is I, I believed, I think like many of us, that Miles was a shoe-in to be the first driver uh, attached to the what's now Force Indy. Um, I'll be interested to see if that happens, my friend. Uh, I do know that they're meant to do some form of as it's commonly referred to, a gong show, bring out a bunch of drivers, have them all test the same car. Uh, and, you know, uh, instead of doing a bunch of individual tests, let's just go book a track for a day or two, run a bunch of people through, and 
then we're going to have our, you know, our decisions on who we want to go with. Um, will miles be there? I don't know. I I've heard that coach Reed might prefer to go with someone he finds. If that's the case, that might mean that miles is not uh, part of force Indy. If that's not accurate, hopefully he would be. I know that at least in the one or two times I've spoken with the kid, I, I, I'm not sure I've spoken to a finer young man uh, this year uh, who just lights, lights up a conversation is funny, sweet, like just a sweet, nice kid, uh, respectful, funny, engaging, multifaceted uh, kids going to college. I mean, just all the things where you go like, wow, if you sit him down in front of anybody to interview him, whether it's a stupid little website that only covers racing or some big outlet, national or international, uh, this kid is going to absolutely make the biggest fan out of the person sitting across from them. In addition to clearly being uh, a talent worth developing in a car. Um, Kids got something and I don't care who quote discovered him. I would hope he would still be seriously considered for uh, a, a force indie future. Uh, final question on the subject here. Jordan Darwin says, MP, if you talked to Willie T since the force indie announcement, uh, wondering how the tone has changed from the original conversations about the race for a quality and change announcement. Haven't spoken to our man, uh, since this was announced, but I do think we spoke the day before he and I usually speak once or twice a week about whatever. Um, I meant to catch up with him, hopefully to add him to our 1000th episode, uh, so provided I do that here in a timely manner, um, I mean, I'll ask, <laughs> I bet you I could give you his quote right here and right now. And uh, I don't know if it would change, um, from past things that you've heard. So yeah, um, I don't know, well, but again, got to give him, we'll see, give him a chance. Maybe there's something he sees now that he did not before that he likes. Uh, I, I don't know though. Sorry, I got to drink a little bit of water there. Who are we going to next? We're going to our pal, Ryan Terstra. Uh, says, Formula One has gone bankrupt. Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen have retired. Dale Coyne calls you up and says, the other 18 F1 drivers come with the funding they need for the number 18 and number 19 in 2021. Who do you recommend he hires? Well, uh, it's a really obvious thing now to say George Russell had you sent this in last week, I before he was even announced as Lewis's replacement, I would have said George because I just think that kid, well, thought that kid was special. No, many people have. Hey, ding, ding, ding. Confirmation. <laughs> uh, confirmation. He's not so bad. Um, let's see. Who else would I pick and choose? Uh boy Alex Albon just strikes me as a Thai slash British uh Alex Pelot right just smiley kid tends to be upbeat um difference though that you know it seems like his confidence has taken uh, a bit of a hit lately so 
I don't know how long the kid is for a top seat in F1, but I do know that, yeah, I, th- I do really like that kid, and I'd love to see him develop into something that was uh, pretty darn cool. Um, I just don't know if that's going to take place uh, as he desires in F1. Beyond that, who else can I think of? Um, I mean, Magnuson's pretty obvious to throw in here. He's kind of at that age where you go, you've been doing this long enough, brother, that I, I hope you can not necessarily back out of it, but you know, the last couple of years have been pretty tough, and that can that can kill a person's uh, fighting spirit to the last millisecond. Um, I'd love to see him in, in IndyCar, where I think he would just be like a, a cage bird that was freed. So probably those two. Uh, I mean, George Russell, obviously. Um, and then either an Albon or a Mag Newson. Um, did I tell you guys that uh, Magnuson has one or two of the uh, Joe Tonto quarter retrieval t-shirts? Um, yeah, <laughs> I hope to get a photo of him in one of those sometime soon here. Uh, we're going to stay on the subject of Jorge Russell. From our pal Will Flander says, Hey, Marshall George Russell's tremendous performance at Bahrain brought up the eternal debate of man versus machine. Indeed, it did. Uh, and I'm not, uh, not referring to your question, Will, but I know that I replied to one on the tweeters that I was tagged on that uh, I'm not sure was the most well formed. Uh, it says, given the relative spec nature of IndyCar today, do you think that the series is among the most effective at identifying driver skill? Say, relative uh, to the series that allow a lot more experimentation with the car. He also says, by the way, thanks to your podcast, I've bought my first physical magazine subscription in years to Racer. That's awesome, Will. Thanks, man. I love Racer magazine. It's just a very different creature than racer.com and it is put together no joke by some serious badasses and artists so i i love contributing to it uh let's see without a doubt indycar is going to make it easier to pick which ones are the truly special versus the not um F1 though there's a there's a beautiful ruthlessness to it though right I've always been fond of Valtteri Bottas right uh more Williams era Valtteri though and that's because he was driving for the underdog one of the underdogs and they were uh just really out uh, over delivering upon expectation and so in that scenario with that team, sorry if y'all can hear the dog barking outside, don't know whose it is, but it's annoying. Uh, in that scenario, Will, I just really enjoyed Valtteri because it seemed like, look, we know you're not going to be out there, you know, grabbing poles and winning all over the place, but man, you're going to be a pretty awesome disruptor. And that role is what is going to really attract interest. That is the thing that is going to give your future better odds of being scooped up by a bigger team. And he did that. Got picked. And cool. Was so happy for him. Didn't admittedly think that he was going to knock off Lewis, 
but I just thought it was going to be an awesome scenario where we could judge and see. Uh, I mean, we knew how amazing Lewis was, right? That, well, barring those who just routinely find ways to criticize and hate, but whatever. Just being impartial, right? Look, this guy, his talent, we know is best of his generation. Okay, how does this Valtteri guy measure up, uh, knowing that he's been pretty good at playing the role of spoiler? Well, we know in qualifying, Lewis's performances have not been crazy spectacular. Um, while the two have been teammates, obviously he's had a ton of polls, but really Valtteri's ability to stand out more often than not has been on Saturdays than Sundays. But what we've seen is on most days, Valtteri's not really close to Lewis, right? Uh, I mean, how many races can we think of where he's on the guy's gearbox? Uh, not many during an opening stint where Lewis is on pole and Valtteri is second, which is seemingly just about every race. What's the gap at that first, you know, when Lewis pits for the first time, yeah, it's considerable. And you go, well, after a couple years, you know, uh, you have to acknowledge that no, there, there's just, there's a ruthless truth to this. We don't get that so much in IndyCar, where, going back to Ryan's question about coin, um, we don't necessarily get this big gap that's shown. Hey, Bobby Rahal's calling. I'm going to take this. I'll be right back. Sorry about that. So, yeah, is the big difference between a Santino Ferrucci and a Alex Pelot on as much of a grand display as we would see with... Uh, a Volteri and Lewis or similar? No. So just say that the minutia to really parse the differences between uh, teammates in IndyCar with spec cars, say it's a little bit harder and you might need to know what you're looking for. Uh, what was the, uh, what was the deal last weekend as well that George had out qualified his teammate in every single race uh, since he entered Formula One last year with Robert Kubica this year with uh, Latifi until uh, Volteri grabbed pole. You know, this is something where, you know, last year with the driver with a acknowledged arm injury that limited his ability to get the most out of the car, eh, not a surprise that George had the upper hand. Latifi being a rookie, very talented, but I don't know if anyone mentions him as being an equal or better than Russell. Again, kids learning just as George was last year. Not a surprise. George has handled him pretty easily this year. But we haven't seen him up against real hardcore talent. Guess what? Boom. Put him up against the guy who challenges Lewis on occasion and just embarrassed the living poop out of him, frankly. Um, the thing that I found interesting and this, I guess, maybe applies to the IndyCar side of the question, Will. I had this conversation with a couple of friends uh, in the sport. Why so many people take the George Russell is fast in Lewis's car in some sort of, and therefore that's a conviction on Lewis's talent angle, instead of, man, uh, I guess Valtteri is really maybe... Uh, not uh, all that we might hope he could be. 
I just found it really interesting that the knee jerk for many people, maybe who just don't like Lewis for whatever reason, uh, just instantly turn negative towards him instead of saying, oh man, uh, I really thought Valtteri was going to show that the one weekend Lewis isn't here, he's the man. Didn't happen at all. <laughs> I know he got the pole, but yeah, in the race, uh, George drove off on the from the dirty side, and uh, yeah. So, found that part interesting. Not that it means anything, but so what makes a Colton Herta, Will, different from a Ryan Hunter Ray or Alexander Rossi, or name whichever other teammate on in the Andretti Autosport gang, it's you're going to be looking at nuances, real nuances that might not jump out. So, yeah, I would say that it might be a little bit easier for a driver who is really good but maybe not exceptional to be hidden in in IndyCar. I don't know if that is so much the case in F1. Um, yeah, so I'll just leave that there and also throw in on the George Russell topic, which... I think it's just yet another thing that was forgotten in the whole, well, see, this is why Lewis really isn't all that special. And you go, you know that George is a Mercedes young driver, right? Like they they see enough talent in him to say, no, 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 you're you're one of ours. Realize that you're with Williams and so on, but hey, uh, you're a part of us. Uh, they don't do that with jokers. They do that with the ones who they consider to be for real so again uh interesting weekend but do i think that if we were talking lewis and george that george would have done the same thing and driven off Uh, not not quite sure we would be having that conversation do i think george could maybe in the future if they're teammates maybe we don't know but boy talk about a an amazing one race sampling to talk about uh Stuart Arif hey Stuart Marshall what is your opinion on why Carlin Racing has struggled with getting to grips with IndyCar uh says their lower for- lower formula teams are top of the table uh winning this past weekend in formula two is it a UK-based effort running in the U.S. or is it a lack of budget and technical support uh what are your thoughts uh, on why it is this way well a couple of things here Stuart <clears throat> They took a big old gigantic step back in their first season. Uh, they invested their R&D budget in understanding the aerodynamics of the car and really did arrow, 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 and instead of damper, 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 and suspension. And they readily acknowledged, oops, uh, this is not something we should have done. So... That set them back. I'm also questioning myself, Stuart, if I'm talking about the 2019 season. Uh, or, yeah. So, i just tell you this. Their first one or two seasons, we know that there was turnover, if we're talking both cars, right? There was not consistent uh, across both seasons. There were not consistent drivers in both entries for the entire thing. Um so you take a team that has been excellent, excellent, kind of the, the global standard for junior open wheel, and they move up to the top tier here in America. Just keep in mind that there have been many excellent 
excellent Indy Lights teams that stepped up to IndyCar. Not all of them necessarily kicked a lot of butt right away. Many of them, frankly, toiled away for many years trying to figure it out, uh, trying to get the money to do more, do better, get the best drivers and such. Uh, This past season, with a couple of drives by Max that were really solid and inspired, and uh, I'd say even more drives by Connor on the ovals, uh, sharing that car with Max. I mean, this past season, I would have to say they really, truly uh, over-delivered, to use that phrase again, they really over-delivered for what should have happened. They've got one driver who's committed to doing the road and street courses. They went with Connor again on the ovals. The ovals ended up being their main strength, and that's not a surprise. A really excellent engineering team. There's been a change there, obviously with Matt Greasley moving over to Rahal Letterman-Lanigan to work with Takuma. That's going to hurt. Uh, But excellent engineer-slash-engineering group. Excellent team in terms of mechanical side. The management side, super strong. Really, there's not a lot of holes to poke in things, except for some of the most obvious, Stuart. They've only been doing this for a couple years. They haven't been flush with cash, and they've had to make some compromises. Last year, not season, but year 2019, we know Indy 500. We know how that really set some bad dominoes in motion. Um, Down to a single car this year. This is a team trying to do big things without big, big dollars behind it, and... I think, honestly, they they deserve some uh, praise for what they've been able to do. You might say, well, all right, let's look at the Meyer-Shank racing team. Uh, they've been better on average, performed better, especially this year as a full-time team. Um, they've been in for, what, roughly the same period of time, uh, done fewer races. Well, true, can't argue with that, but keep in mind in their first Full two seasons, or their first, in 2018 and 2019, what they did, six races in 18, 10 races in 19, uh, they had a technical alliance with Arrow McLaren SP. So jump starting the technical side, and while back then known as Arrow SPM, I believe, um, it paid dividends, and it helped jump start them. They had the budget to do that, and a team that was willing to take that money in exchange for uh, giving them an engineer uh, set up and them being uh, invited into and an active part of the engineering debrief and development each weekend. Um, Not the case with Carlin. And so there's no bigger team to tap into for them to expedite their learning curve. This year, past season... Uh, We've had Meyershank Racing aligned with Andretti Autosport, and that certainly was an upgrade. And we saw them get faster, better, more consistent in everything. And I've heard the price tag, and it's money. (laughs) It's it's like it's not not a small amount of money. So if you then look at what Carlin has to offer, and I know that Max's father is a quadrillionaire and is a financier of the team in many ways, but his old man's not writing a giant check each year uh, for that entry. Um, 
they have to make do with less. So we'll just say pretty consistent turnover on the driver side and or adjustments, right? Max did the full season and what 18 uh, decided not to do the rest of the ovals. What after the Indy 500 last year, um, back again, doing just the ovals this year, bit of a compromise. Who's in the car? What, um, now we have a single entry this year instead of the two in 2019 with Charlie Kimball, uh, in the other car for whatever amount of races he was able to do. Just imagine, (laughs) um, imagine the team coming into a season with a single driver doing all the races. That'd be amazing. I really hope it happens for them. Uh, they're going to have to make some leaps on the engineering side and I don't know where they're at budget wise, but I don't foresee this story changing Stuart, um, this year, this coming season, but I root for them privately because, uh, Trevor and, uh, Steph, Carl and his wife, the two of them who run Carlin racing, uh, they're pretty awesome people and, uh, just got all the time in the world for them. And yeah, uh, winning, I think is certainly not out of their, out of their league, but they've just got a bigger thing to overcome than most. Uh, let's see. We're going to Christopher Davis. Hey, Marshall. Renus VK was quoted by David Malsher and Ronald Vording, uh, as saying, and I definitely don't want to move to a top team too soon. There's certainly been some interest from top teams, but there's nothing in it for next year. Uh, and above all, it feels good to stay at Ed Carpenter racing for another year. Who knows which seats will be available after that, as some drivers are approaching the end of their careers, maybe. Uh, he said, this seems to be completely tone deaf, according to Christopher. What are your thoughts? And any word on how Ed Carpenter reacted? Um, I don't know about the tone deaf part, man. Uh, keep in mind that Renus brings some funding to the team. Um, I wouldn't pretend to know what the percentage is for the entry, but uh, I do. I mean, look, he's a ridiculously talented driver. He's from the land of Holland. He has, I would say, rightfully attracted some serious interest uh, within his native land. And we know that there are, there's some sponsor money that comes with him. I would say a kid who is really talented and I, and I think many of us believe is going to be one of the big stars of the future. Um, Hey, of course you express your gratitude. Of course you say you're happy to be where you are. Uh, it feels good to stay at Ed Carpenter racing for another year, of course, but it's incumbent upon Ed to find all the money to run him and to pay him a lot of money, provided he keeps developing in the direction that he does, to make sure that he would never want to go to another team because Ed Carpenter Racing has become so good that any other team is a step down. That's not the case right now. That's not who he's driving for. Uh, And so, again, that's not disrespect. That's looking at the factual results and saying, Ed Carpenter Racing is not ready to vie for a championship, period. Um, And I hope that that changes. I'd love for that to change for next year. They would too. (laughs) But, yeah, 
there there's not a single driver within ganassi penske and dreddy uh aero mclaren sp which has jumped up to uh you know the what's normally referred to as the big three i'm not saying they're part of the big three yet but they're knocking on the door in p4 um i mean carpenter's team on a weekend by weekend basis was beaten more often than not if we're just looking at where the championship standings played out here uh if you look at how things ended up i mean renas was rookie of the year again i realize he's a rookie so temper our expectations but finished 14th in the standings you know santino ferrucci second year guy in a dale coin racing car was one spot ahead of him um and knowing all the problems that they had with pit stops and other things kind of messing up their year, you know, uh, you can say that Ed Carpenter racing isn't necessarily better based on 2020's results than Dale coin racing, which is the acknowledged, you know, perennial underfunded punching above their weight underdog, uh, Meyer shank racing in their first full season was one point behind Renus. Uh, with Jack Harvey, Alex Pillow was two spots behind Renus. So, you know, um, there would be nothing strange, in my opinion, by Renus overstating the obvious. Hey, look, I'm here. I'm happy to be. This is awesome. Uh, I know that there are some other big drives that could probably be open and available. I'm aware of one or two big teams who inquired about his availability, were interested in him, and I don't think it worked out timing-wise. When their availability popped up, uh, I think things might have been a little bit too far along, if not done, with going back to Carpenter. So that might be part of the reason why or the area where you get something like this where <laughs> you know he's had those bigger teams knocking on the door and has a feeling that hey all right maybe the timing didn't work out uh for 2020 but uh, who knows what might happen next year so i don't think it's tone deaf at all uh at least is how the quote lands with me christopher if you are putting yourself in the mindset of a top tier team owner keep in mind that there are many teams in many forms of racing not all of them are top tier but if you put yourself in the mindset of a top tier team owner team manager and whatnot uh they always have pressure that they apply to themselves to give their drivers no reason to want to go anywhere else and that extends to crew chiefs, engineer, right? On down the line, the, the, of course, everyone is important, but there are some that are more important than others. And you certainly want to make sure the ones who can make your team a winner do not want to go somewhere else to make another team a winner. So I would have to say that an Ed Carpenter or a Tim Broyles or whomever among the leadership um, at ECR might have read that. And I would hope, you know, I'm not saying it would have felt good, but that's the acknowledgement. Like, 
All right, man, you're right. Uh, there are going to be some openings coming up, uh, some contracts up at Penske, maybe uh, Andretti, maybe wherever that, maybe this could be the kid's new home. Let's make sure we do some smart things so he has no reason to want to go elsewhere. Um, that It's competition. That's <laughs> That's the mindset. This is hardcore competition, and if you aren't doing a good enough job, of course, people are going to, the quality people are probably going to want to go somewhere else where their efforts will be rewarded. It's only natural. Uh, Jamie Rowe, how you doing, Jamie? Says, looking for speculation on remaining unconfirmed open seats. Both seats at Coin, Roden Street at ECR. Second car at Carlin, says, assuming Chilton. Um, four car and possibly the 41 at Foyt. Uh, did I miss any? Uh, also any rumors about Top Gun racing or Citroen Buell for 2021, uh, still haven't had a chance to ring Robbie Buell. So I can't answer on the Citroen Buell, uh, rumors about Top Gun, Jamie, I love you. That's funny. Um, on the Foyt side, I don't know. I've played phone tag with Larry Foyt a couple times and either he's called me when I'm unavailable or I've called him when he's unavailable. Um, I rang back. Uh, I don't know if I've heard back from Larry the last time I called him. Again, not abnormal, uh, nor is it something that I've pushed. So, again, not critical, but I don't honestly know uh, where they're at there. If we're talking a third car, I would be drastically surprised if Dalton Kellett is not a full-time driver in, I'll just call it the second Foyt car. I don't know what numbers that would be or what they would decide it to be, the 4 the 41 have heard about, have written about the fact that they're looking at that third car. We know that it, uh, Romain Groschon was, we'll just say, someone of keen interest before his crash. Uh, I can't tell you if and how many others might have been on that list, but I've never known the Foyt team to only have one person that they're interested in. Uh, so don't know there. Uh, Roden Street for ECR, I don't know. Um, I believe we should... I mean, hopefully be hearing by the end of the week from uh, Connor and company about what they are or aren't doing with uh, hopefully a nice wad of uh, sponsorship from the Air Force, Space Force, Force City Force. Um, Not Force Indy, though. Uh, That's the question, Jamie. So in terms of rumor, I mean, I haven't heard a ton coming out of ECR. They're pretty good at at being tight-lipped about such things. I do need to maybe raise my hand and say somewhere among the many post-it notes littered throughout my desk and things that I think I wrote down on notepads. I think I'd heard about someone that I found interesting as a possibility for Ed Carpenter racing, but uh, it's not coming to mind right now. Overstating the obvious here, we should be finding out whether hopefully there's money for Connor to stay, first of all. Second, whether it will be in a ongoing road and street course role as he has had, or hopefully elevated through additional funding to uh, become a full-time driver. Then it's the question of what Ed try and find, does he have somebody who might be a road and street course driver in his entry, or would he just do the ovals? Um, I know that I, I forget who I was going back and forth with, but the question of timing on learning this, you know, uh, we know that a pitch was made, heard things about it being positively received by uh, 
air force and such just waiting to hear back. Um, I would hope that would happen soon. I do wonder though, if that answer might be something we maybe shouldn't expect to come before January 20th or 21st, when we have a new uh, government installed and a new president and many new folks and many new departments. Um, As tumultuous as things have been since the election, Jamie, uh, I if I just had to put myself in the position of someone in any branch of the military getting ready to spend money apportioned by the government on something that isn't related to, you know, hard uh, machinery and going straight to the troops. I'm just saying I could imagine that if I was the person making that decision, knowing how things have not been super steady right now in this transition and how contentious it has been and how probably not many folks want to do anything formal that might stand out, draw any criticism and so on. And I'm not saying that doing a marketing deal with Ed Carpenter Racing is bad in any way. I'm just saying, hey, Knowing that this hasn't exactly been the smoothest, easiest, uh, maybe do we wait until there's an official transition and we can say we're not in this limbo zone where what we read about on a daily basis is about lawsuits and electoral college and this and that. Like Timing, Jamie, just feels like, man, I I feel bad. If any of that is accurate i'm just having to imagine i feel bad because uh, this is a time where of course you want to hear this is what we're doing or not doing at least give us a direction yeah maybe things have been uh derailed a little bit in that regard so uh other than that on the coin side yeah uh i don't exactly know where they're going to end up we have written that uh, we're waiting for Santino to be confirmed in a 20-race Xfinity deal. So we'll see where that leads. We just don't expect it to lead him back to IndyCar. Um, Groschon's quotes about racing next year, not racing next year, that he gave last weekend would certainly lead you to think that maybe he's not so keen on the IndyCar thing right now. Uh, after the crash, I know that he was certainly of interest and on their radar. I, I, <laughs> I would love to tell you that I think they're going to sign driver A and driver B at the good old Dale Coin House of Fun. I just don't have an amazing feel for that right now. Uh, in light of what's happened here with Groshaw's, I think being also somewhat of a leading candidate there potentially. So yeah, the main one I've heard, which I think I wrote about is Pietro Fittipaldi. And he and I texted a little bit before his uh, F1 debut and we didn't get into anything serious. It's just more of a, uh, a, Hey, congratulations. Um, and whatnot, but yeah, have heard his name mentioned, more than once as a pretty decent candidate to possibly end up back there. 
I've heard nothing to steer me in a different direction. Um, so yeah, hope, um, hope that we can get some, uh, some answers here as well. So I know that's a little bit of an obvious duh statement, but yeah, uh, I'm with you. I don't mean, I genuinely don't care. Folks could, uh, everyone else can break all the stories and I am the last everything and so on and so forth. Um, I just really hope that we start to get, uh, some of the answers that we look for because you know what? I'm a fan. want to see some, uh, some amusing things. So, all right, where else do we go here? Uh, Daniel Summerskill resubmission. Although there won't be a new IndyCar chassis for several years. What do you think the designer should prioritize when developing the new car? So it's hashtag me personally. The cars need to be much lighter, improved aero to allow closer racing. Here you are, man of the people, Daniel. And mandatory LED panels. What if they could only use the single LED panel that I have and they have to kind of trade it throughout the race? I think that's that's number one on the list, right? Um, funny, funny, funny. Uh, let's see. I think the the re- removing weight part is universally agreed upon, knowing what this uh, curse system is going to bring in terms of weight. Might have a little bit of an answer, uh, not definitive answers on how that might happen, but the mindset coming from the series might be able to share that here shortly. I just got some writing to do, Daniel. The question that I would love to get answered by a designer at Delara is, hey, you've got the existing DW12 tub fully modified with the additional Xylon panels, anti-intrusion panels on the sides of the cockpit and anti-intrusion elements for the front wishbone so drivers don't get speared again like James Hinchcliffe experienced. You've got the mounting points added to the tub for the halo and arrow screen. And you've got all these things that have been done. What's the, the amount of weight that has added from the, as we dropped off chassis number DW 12, number one to a race team in uh, 2012, what's the, what's the weight increase from day one to now? And Okay, great. That's the first answer I'd love to get. The second answer is knowing that by the time a new chassis comes along, and I'm talking again, what folks call the safety cell, the monocoque, whatever, the carbon survival piece, the main main piece of the chassis. How far has materials, science, and practices come since the DW12 was designed? and whatever, however many number of newer ones have been made, how far have things come uh, since 2011 when production first started to now in terms of making a car that is just as safe, if not safer, and meets all the load tests and crash tests and uh, all these things, um, but how much lighter could that be made with 10 years' worth of development in this area, Daniel? Uh, to bring the weight down. I truly don't have an idea what that number might be, but this is something that 
I should probably highlight here, which I'm doing right now, to uh, to ask some folks who who knows. Maybe I hope I can get an answer. But some of that would have to be theoretical because you'd have to talk about what if you had to design the DW12 today? No changes, no anything to its shape. Just recreate this car, but starting from scratch with everything used, you know, in 2021 uh, materials and processes. Um, keeping in mind that obviously they could do updates over the years if they wanted to when they had to build a new tub, but since this is a spec series, ugh, you, you know, that's not really something they would do. So just be curious. If you had to do a DW12 in 2021, how much lighter do you think you could make it while maintaining all of the safety equipment and standards found in the uh, the Evolution version of the DW12? So that's the big thing. Um, the back of the car, you know, composites in Formula One, absolutely normal. That's where they take all the weight out of things. Could you take a lot of weight out of an Indy car by going to a carbon gearbox, bell housing, and so on? Of course. You're trading metal for fabric and composites and such. Um, cost, big. So I don't know where a lot of other weight comes uh, out of, Daniel. That's a big question there. Um, in general, slick aerodynamics, I would say, would be something that I hope the, the next designers would really look for. Uh, if you think back to the latter Lola Champ cars, the last Panos, the last Champ car, the Panos DPO1, had the ability to make downforce. Definitely had the ability to bolt on downforce. But they were pretty sleek cars to begin with. And I just think that the DW12 was such a camel, you know, or such a donkey, I should say. Total design by committee with competing and sometimes at great odds needs and goals and initiatives that rarely all added up and blended into something harmonious. The idea of trying to make a really slippery car uh, that doesn't have a ton of drag, that really doesn't have a ton of drag, that won't cause a ton of buffeting, uh, that has sufficient front downforce uh, on speedways, I mean everywhere, but you know something where, look, you can get close without the front of the car being thrown all over the place due to the, the turbulence and arrow wash, um, which would then inspire confidence to try and pass. Uh, also has enough downforce at the front of the car to pull off that pass and make it stick and not understeer and have to lift and give back the position. I know this is going to this might sound contrite or snarky or whatever, but this isn't the first time <laughs> indie cars have been designed, my man, to go around road courses, street courses, and ovals of various sizes. This isn't the first time those cars have been used and been successful. They have had I don't know if we've ever had as much downforce as we had by about twenty sixteen, but High downforce cars are things that we've had that have raced and raced well and put on great shows. It's been done with low downforce cars, cars with more power, cars with less power, cars with stickier tires, cars with harder tires. 
I don't know if there's a ton of questions here on how to make things right. The, the primary issue that we've seen, Daniel, is the DW12 was nowhere close to right when it came out, and they have been working on it since. They've changed bodywork about 19 times. Uh, they've done all kinds of things. This car was shit from the beginning and has been morphed, modified, chop channel, dropped, you name I mean, you turn on one of the, the hot-rotting, rebuild, customized resto mod shows on Motor Trend TV or wherever else, and those cars have probably been uh, modified less than the DW12. I'm exaggerating, but not by too much. Just say, really, man, other than the mandatory LED panels, fully agree. Um, I don't think this is a real problem or challenge. I think that the people who design indie cars uh, and can design, those who are on the teams who used to do design, used to do just maybe development of the cars that they got each year from whichever uh, supplier, like there's so much knowledge contained and so many years of competition from folks in IndyCar too, in their technical department, who know what a good car looks like, how it's supposed to be built, uh, the options it should be given to allow it to have quality racing and passing and so on and so forth. None of these things are mysteries, brother. The DW12 really, truly has been this, it's been an aberration where it's required so much work, so much development, so many changes. It's gone through so many things to try and make it right and good. It's not a mystery, my friend. I just think starting from scratch would be a good way to just get us back to something that works properly and works properly from the outset. Uh, Let's see, where else are we going? We're going to go to Mitch Mortensen. Mitch, I don't know if I recall reading a question from you on the show here. If I have, I apologize, and I suck. If I don't, I appreciate you and thank you for submitting for the first time. It says, Marshall, hope everything is going well, as it can be in these strange times. Strange days indeed. This is a couple days ago, iRacing announced that they are working with Delar to create the ultimate race car for their top-tier championship. It's called the IR01. And it has heaps of power coming from a V10 and will hopefully create some great racing. With this in mind, what would be your optimal package, engine, aero, looks, etc., to create the ultimate IndyCar? No need to worry about cost or complexity. Well, that's no fun, uh, my friend Mitch. So I love high noses. Uh, I love high noses. I just think it's a beautiful, sexy thing. So high nose for sure. Uh, tapered down into something sharp, not necessarily pointy. Jeez, fire alarm's gone off yet again, friends. All right, let's try and keep going after the second little pause there. So, yeah, hour and a half later, everything's fine. Um, Yeah, there you go. So, (laughs) uh, it's our first fire alarm, I think, in a long time, so... Hey, you know, go outside where it's cold in your shorts, uh, you know, ah, normal stuff. Uh, all right. 
spoke about the raised nose, elevated nose, pointed nose a little bit, something that just looks really beautiful and sexy. The Coke bottle waist, I think, is kind of normal for what looks good on a uh, quality formula car. I love the low-slung engine cover. Since it's a turbo, we don't need to go back to the dumb overhead air scoop that we didn't need for a long time. So I'm just thinking that we're staying pretty similar with what we have in terms of looks. I really do. I don't think the new car, I'm sorry, the current car is too far off what the next car, new car might look like. As I mentioned on the show, I don't know, a couple times, Mitch, maybe in the past couple years, boy, with a brand new tub, a brand new survival cell in place, I, I almost wonder if we couldn't use kind of sort of a lot of what we have right now. So, you know, uh, since it is a spec series, and we know that slipperiness is going to be something that is of great value because that will allow the car to go faster. Um, I think hopefully some beauty can be incorporated back into it while achieving uh, the goals for looks. Real question. Just talking the overall concept here, Mitch, before we move on. Should IndyCar try and do something futuristic, right? I mean... There are points in North American open wheel evolution where you can go, ah, that's a break from the past. That's something different. Everything that came before it looks old and outdated. It's been a while since we've had that. So even the gorgeous 2007 Panos Champ car, it didn't really look different from anything in the past. It just kind of crystallized everything into something that looked awesome. But it's been a while since there was a real visual leap. I don't know what that would be, but futurism as a general design exploration, I think that might be pretty cool. Uh, If you look at what we have in Formula One, in NASCAR, even in IMSA, the WEC, WRC, I can't think of any series, honestly, Mitch, where we can stare at the current car or the one that's coming next year, the year after, whatever, and say, wow, that's going someplace different. Maybe IndyCar could try to do that since it's really not much of an issue if they want to try something adventurous and it does not hurt the car aerodynamically or weight-wise. There's a latitude to play. So maybe it tries to differentiate itself and look like it's a car from 2035. I don't know. Uh, I'd love to see some design studies that tried instead of just kind of making the same shape we've had for a long time. Uh, As for engine and such, what I'd love to have is a V12 or a triple or four rotor something or, I don't know, a snarling high revving twin turbo v6 single turbo v8 i mean i i could be all over the place on motors just having to be a little bit practical here i know you're saying ultimate race car um you know if we're talking about making this thing magical and i realized that i kind of dipped into what i think the real next indycar should be not just the virtual version here 
something that is light, something that has a lot of power, but with a motor that isn't huge, you're going to throw off the weight distribution. You know, there there's stuff in here. So, yeah, I think a compact but high-power, higher-revving motor would be pretty amazing. An F1 V10 from, you know, I didn't dislike the make-your-ears-explode 19,000 RPM versions uh, through whatever it was, the mid-2000s and such. But I actually kind of liked the through the late 90s where the revs were high, but they weren't so insane. Um, you could, there was just more depth and bass that you could hear. It wasn't pure treble. So I don't know. I, (laughs) I would love to see some sort of missile like creation, Mitch, that had an amazing sounding engine that made a lot of speed and power and fury. Um, I don't know if, well, again, we're talking ultimate, of course, a seamless gearbox that shifts in negative seconds, right? That's how fast it is. Um, I don't know. If we're talking ultimate, I'd love to go back to something manual because that's another thing that if we're talking about getting the most out of the driver, um, you can make a vehicle that's the ultimate, but do you see the ultimate differentiations in driver going back to a question uh, from a little while ago? So I don't know. I don't know if I have a great like definitive answer for you because I'm pulled in a few different directions on what I think it should be. And yeah, what I, if you want Mitch next week, don't have to send in a question, but send in an answer of what your ultimate would be. So that'd be pretty cool. The last question here we have above the line as identified by our man, Tim, of the Falkwitz tribe comes in from our pal, John Wojnar, a fine member of the Prude day. Uh, this wacky, wacky subgroup of listeners to the stupidity that I generate here on my podcast, um, who just are really funny people who make me laugh and smile. So thank you, John, uh, for being a practitioner there. Uh, he says resubmission. Um, and I can tell that in that word, oh, there's anger. There's venom in that. John says, hope you had an amazing holiday weekend. I know that's a lie. Uh, says, as a Detroit's Lions fan, did I say Detroit's? Sure, it's plural. As a Detroit's Lions fan, I had an amazing weekend. As two deadweights on our team, the coach, Matt Patricia, and GM Bob Quinn were fired. Uh, with the hunt for replacements on in the Motor City, what two members from the paddock would you hire to coach and then GM my beloved Lions? Maybe Chip Ganassi or Craig Hampson at GM. And uh, Alexander Rossi coaching? What about Ed Carpenter coaching and putting himself in the lineup in Indianapolis, Dallas, and whatever team's closest to St. Louis? Uh, As always, praying for you and your wife. All right. So, hmm. GM and coach. So, if we're talking GM, that would be in the Tim Sindrick, uh, Rob Edwards... Mike Hall, uh, Tim Broyles, who else kind of range? Terry Brown from Coin, right? There's some good choices there. Do we just, do we go the automatic route and say, well, who won the last IndyCar championship? Who kind of oversaw that? Well, that would be Hall. Um, and automatically put him in as GM. 
uh, you know what? We're going to go, we're going to, we're going to go youth, right? We're going to go youthful prospects. So we're looking for a turnaround, right? John, as I drop stuff that I'm holding, uh, why don't we go for someone who helped? I was about to say architect instead of author. That's funny. Uh, we're going to go with a young guy who just architected a bit of a turnaround in a single season. One that was very impressive. That was Taylor Kyle, newly appointed managing director of Arrow McLaren SP. Sometimes referred to by our listeners, maybe even the host as spam. Uh, we're going to go with Taylor. Why? Well, obviously the insertion of one Patricio award, uh, was a pretty big catalyst in making that team go better than it had since Robert Wickens, uh, the acquisition and implementation of one Gregorius Hampson. Uh, that certainly didn't hurt at all. Uh, I would say, hey, we know some of the old heads, right? These guys won championships and done all kinds of things, and that's great. Uh, look, your team sucks. Your, your, your team is just... Uh, they don't even deserve the dumpster that they might be placed in where the fire gets set. So, and this is coming from a guy who San Francisco 49ers, I realize we got some potential, but you know, we've had some years where what for whatever the reason we've been trash. So I get it, fully get it. Growing up, I was a, my favorite team was the Pittsburgh Steelers. So despite meeting Joe Montana, when I was in sixth grade, I still didn't care about the 49ers until he started playing because they were so bad. So I understand. Um, let's go with someone who, who's just helped make something really good happen for a team that was underachieving. So, huh? Maybe something there. Uh, if we're talking coach, right? Different level, different level. Who would we insert? I think and this would really be the funnest John because I don't think he understands anything. Um, Dario Franchitti, right? I mean, he would he would be the Detroit Lions version of a Scottish Ted Lasso. And that, I think, might be the funniest thing ever. By the way, if y'all haven't seen the Ted Lasso on, I think it's Apple Plus, hilarious. Jason Sudeikis, ugh, my wife and I, we just laugh nonstop at that. Um, I think we go with Dario. It, now, granted, that's going to undo everything that Taylor brings, but he's pretty smart and intuitive. He, he's a quick study, copious notes, big strategy guy. Uh, again, he, he's you're going to have a couple years where it's bad, but he's he's going to be okay. Um, Rossi coaching. No, I don't know if Ro uh, Dario might know more about football than Rossi. I don't know if that's true or not, but I just like saying it. Um, I think those are my answers. Now, let's look below the cut line here, and uh, let's see. We're going to try and roll in. I'm not even going to call this overtime because it's this episode isn't running too, too late. Uh, let's see. Driver starting his own team comes from Monkey on Twitter. Okay, Monkey. Uh, what modern era driver is most or least, li least likely to start his own team? 
Uh, well, we just spoke about Dario. He's not because he does. He likes keeping the money that he has. Uh, not Dixon. Not no. I don't think Hunter Ray wants to do that. He likes fishing too much. Um, who who do I get a feel? I don't. I'm not sure if I really see any that are jumping out here among current drivers. Uh, modern era even just going back a few years who would uh, that haven't already because i don't think they either have the money or the real interest or talent so one that's that's a that might be a really interesting topic to explore monkey because i think it might be indicative of a wider thing to explore that being are we looking at a a glut are we looking at a if that's the right word are we looking at maybe a shift where the driver turn owner thing is that going to get broken here are we going to maybe break that string and who knows if it'll get uh, sewn up and fixed so great question i'm not sure uh but yeah I i can't think of many that have enough money where they would actually want to do their own thing uh, and feel comfortable spending it and or getting a lot of it from someone else. Uh, Daniel Summerskill. Hey, Daniel. MP, you posted on Race about a month ago that Felipe Nazar was looking to do a dual IndyCar and IMSA program. Any further news? Nothing mentioned about him in the latest Silly Season article. Uh, says, also, you know anything of F2 driver uh, Sean Galil? Uh, Galil coming to IndyCar as he's announced he's left F2. I know, as I think I mentioned, uh, Dale Coyne is really fond of some of the young F2 drivers who aren't going to F1. I don't believe many, if any, have a lot of money to offer that would really make it a no-brainer, but I think Dale will see. I'll be surprised if a one F2 driver is not announced in one of the two open seats there just because... Dale really truly is always looking for the next big star. And if he has a star, he wants to hold on to them. He doesn't have a star right now. So I think, I think he's going to be trying to find someone who can do a bit of shock and awe talent wise and good on him. If that comes to pass, uh, let's see, Alexi Rushko. Hey, Alexi, how are you? Been a little while. Uh, it says, hey, Marshall, first of all, happy birthday. Best wishes to you and your wife. Thanks, man. Remembering uh, one last year podcast with Mike Hole, uh, where you were talking about dr- driver's insurance. I'm curious if the Indy cars are insured. I'm sure that teams have insurance related to fire, theft, etc. But what about insurance if the cars crash during the race? Some do. Uh, Alexia, I don't know how many do full season um, these days. I know that a number do Indy 500 for sure, but I know that some still do. Uh, it's another good question. I might just, uh, might ask one or two that I know who might be able to answer. Uh, let's see. Tony chef 20 got a question about, uh, holding IndyCar and any lights races, uh, back to back. Um, I'm going to hold off on this one for right now. My friend, Somebody with a V6, some sort of almost high school miles ago. Uh, Lance Snyder, MP with IMSA and IndyCar team sitting on announcement until the uh, very end of the year. Why do they do that? I get IMSA because of the late Sebring uh, race this year, closing their season mid, uh, mid-November, mid but IndyCar is confusing. If a deal's been done for months, um, 
announce while lots of bandwidth is available, not when you have what will be 30 more announcements all competing with each other over a couple weeks' time. It reminds me of F1 qualifying where for the first three quarters of the session, no cars out on track. Then everyone wants to qualify and drivers and teams piss and moan about very little open track. Yeah, I'm with you, Lance. I would just say, yeah, in a normal year, I don't fully get it. Um you mentioned the weird year this year. So that's going to shuffle some things up. Uh, I was having a conversation with a friend at IMSA today about this very topic and saying, Hey, uh, do you guys like coordinate with teams? I know you do sometimes, but I'm talking about like really taking control of that. And of course a series can't dictate to its teams when they're allowed or not allowed to put out their press release that, driver a has been signed they're gonna do this to a motor they got a new sponsor whatever but do you guys really try and take control of this so you can say hey there are four of you trying to go on the same day in december let's not do that um or whatever do you get in there and do that and so i think they're going to try and do more of that from their end to have a little bit more coordination and control um the indycar side i don't fully know man i really don't uh what we had the Colton Hurt announcement today. Um, we could maybe have one or two more Andretti announcements uh, before the end of the year. We know, as we've discussed, Ed Carpenter Racing is on the clock for the 20 car and or whatever number Connor might be in if things work out that way. We've got Dale Coyne, I've heard, could be pretty close to being on the clock to announce something soon or shortly. Uh... I think it's just the way some things work out this year, Lance. Uh, yeah, I recall mentioning this on the show before. The common theme that I've heard from some of the teams, and it's not limited to IndyCar, but I've heard it a lot in IndyCar, some of it in IMSA, has been with that COVID clause. Hey, if things get moved and shuffled around and races get canceled and hey if we commit to pay you for 17 races and it turns out to be 15 here's the mechanism of how and what and where not just hey if a race gets canceled you give us back one race's worth of money but if a replacement is made up where is it is it in a region of the country or is it in a is it in this country we would assume it is but you know, hey, we might not be budgeted for that uh, event um, if it isn't in the country, right? If we think about the Ganassi 48 car, for example, we saw that NTT Data will be taking over primary sponsorship at Toronto, for example. You can assume that Carvana probably doesn't have a Canadian thing yet. Therefore, they had no interest in spending money going to a place where they're going to get uh, minimal value from trying to promote what they do. Well, again, just speaking general stuff here, Lance, um, our minister of mirth. Um, hey, what if we're going to a track and we'd love it and we're going to activate super heavily and we're going to pay for a big old hospitality suite or tent or whatever and invite a zillion guests and this is going to be a big event where we do a big activation what if that gets canceled well that's actually budget wise you know 
for what we're giving you to race and then also what we're spending on our end. I mean, this is a pretty big thing. And, hey, maybe we have to order the tent or the whatever it is, pay this stuff six months in advance. Well, if by chance that thing gets canceled, uh, maybe they say, we're not going to go to here, but we're going to make it up and go to there or do two races at this place. Great. Cool. Wonderful. So we're still doing the same number of races that that new race has limited value by comparison to us than the one that got canceled. So do we pay you less for that? It's all kinds of little stuff like this, man. So that's why I think you're seeing some where you're like, come on. We know Ryan Hunter Ray is going to go here. We expect Hinch to be there. We expect this, expect that. It's all the little minutia. If this domino falls, then what happens financially? Yeah, what are what are the possibilities for the makeup? How is that valued? Not valued? Is there a threshold that says if the race, if the calendar is seventeen and it gets cut to fourteen? What percent do you give back? What are those races potentially? How do you attach a value to each race if it were to be canceled? I mean, lawyers, my friend, have probably made more off of doing IndyCar contracts than ever for those who have sponsorship deals in place in particular. Keep in mind that out of that sponsorship money, drivers are paid. And, you know, just trying to add more to the ball of confusion here, Lance. So if you're a race car driver and you're signing a new one-year deal, multi-year deal, who knows how many years deal, and you've got COVID back again in 2021, I was about to say 2011, that'd be interesting. And it's wreaking a little bit of calendar-based havoc and your team is having to give back money or just not plan on getting paid for this month or that month, however it gets reconciled. Having learned and seen how things went in 2020, do I think that brand new driver contracts that include 2021, who knows, maybe it's a multi-year deal, but that there will absolutely be team favoring clauses that say, hey, if we get kicked in the crotch because of COVID uh, and we're not necessarily racing at all the events that we we're planning and or whatever. Sorry, bro. You're going to have to take a couple lumps with us here too. What we're not going to do is be losing money because of something we can't control and we struggle, but you still get the same amount. So again, it's a lot of complexity here to figure out, brother. I think that's why we're going to have more December IndyCar driver announcements, deal announcements, whatever, than probably just about any that I can recall. Uh, let's see. Ryan Terpstra, you're back. Uh, my question this week stems from a Twitter thread with Pato Ward and the Arrow McLaren SP Twitter account. Pato is cheering for Sergio Perez at the start of the Bahrain race, and the team account was like, uh, was like dude, he just passed one of our team cars, McLaren. Uh, Potter responded by saying, I'm cheering for my countrymen and they're like, uh, a new social media policy will be available for you Monday. So my question is they really sent him a new social media policy, didn't they? Um, 
I hope not. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's not something that you would put on social media. Uh, if they were really pissed, like really pissed, um, I think you would have seen Pato's tweet disappear uh, and nothing mentioned by the team. Do I think the team said something? Yeah, they're not necessarily always a ball of fun when it comes to this kind of stuff. It's not like there's anything that happened, I don't know, like 14 months ago, 15 months ago that had them feeling a little little sensitive about uh, social media and such. Uh, Let's see, David Cubine. uh, Let's see... Send this one in again, my friend, maybe next week. I uh, just want to get this episode done and not too long for folks. Um, Gabe Argenti got a question about whether safer barriers are flammable. Um, well, I mean, in, in theory, everything has a melting point. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if the foam in question of what separates the... Uh, the vaguely flexible metal um, shield, the uh, the safer barrier itself from the wall, those pieces of foam, I don't know if they are or are not flammable. Great question. Uh, yet again, I'm highlighting this to ask someone who is smarter than I. So uh, I also realize that I don't necessarily always men- don't always necessarily mention what I do or don't learn in the next episode because we always have a lot of questions. So don't know. We'll try and find out. And don't be afraid to ask again here shortly. Um, Alexander Mack, AMP 2020 has flipped our lives upside down and backwards. That being the case, which IndyCar street or road circuit would you pick for a reverse Grand Prix around the course? Oh, boy. Road America's just seems like it's always the right answer. Uh, And I know I've given that before. So let me try and come up with one. And I think I recently said Nashville. Let me come up with something new. Well, Indianapolis 500. No, that's not a Rotor Street course, Pruitt. Uh, Boy, Long Beach could be interesting if we did that. I'd probably say Barber, maybe. It's so kind of rolly and hilly and nuts that I just wonder what it would be like. Uh, I also wonder how low of a first gear would be needed to climb one or more of those hills at a slower speed, since obviously uh, not coming into them at the same high rate. So I'll go Barber, Alexander. That might be fun. Uh, Okay, we're getting to the close here. Sean Lee and Jake Ziller, who I read as Zake Jiller, I believe, the first time you uh, sent in a question, pal. Uh, says Jake says, hey, hope all's well with you. Have you by chance heard of the new road course named Ozarks International Raceway? I have, and I love the international part. That's always fun. Um, uh, by the Lake of the Ozarks. Uh, looks pretty good so far. Got me thinking, what does it take for IndyCar to consider going to a track? be awesome to see IndyCar Road to Indy come close to uh, KC for a road course. So the closest track we have now is Gateway in St. Louis. Uh, Madison, Illinois, if I believe, if I remember correctly. Um, Ozarks, yes. So knowing that the Pruitt family, um, I believe, yeah, there's, there's Ozark people. Uh, I always think of Arkansas 
So whenever Ozarks is seen, yeah, I part of me thought like, hey, we're going to have the uh, Pruitt family hee-haw grand pricks. Um, Sean Lee also mentions, there's the always the could Indy race at under uh, blank track questions. Uh, the answer typically comes down to money, but from a technical and safety standpoint, could IndyCar race at, say, Daytona, Talladega, Bristol, or on another note, uh, someone should just start a GoFundMe to buy you more beer. Uh, just six Sam Smiths to last the year. You know, I'd probably have one each week if I could afford them. And I realize beers aren't that expensive, but they aren't that cheap. And uh, we're just having to be very frugal. Uh, so sorry there. Um, you know, the the safety part is probably going to be a bigger aspect of what gets reviewed on this kind of stuff more than ever before so even if there was someone that said hey gotta have the talladega 1000 indycar race whatever um you know for some of the tracks that we haven't been to for a while or ever that are big and scary like some of the ones you mentioned sean i think there would certainly be a huh yeah big scary crashes those are no longer really something people are willing to tolerate. So that might be something to avoid, but yes, it always comes down to money. Um, Jake, as for your question about the Ozarks, I've seen it, uh, just the overhead shot that probably everybody saw. Um, I mean, it looks like really cool. I am struggling to recall seeing a ton of runoff in a lot of places that might make me think it would B F I A I don't know what number standard, but good enough to where you go, yep, cool, we can race there and, and know that um everything should be fine from a safety standpoint. I'm not saying it's unsafe, I'm not saying anything, I'm just saying looking at the layout, it didn't have the oh and there's a lot of runoff like you would typically see at a brand new racing circuit. I know that we go to a lot of tracks that have been around forever and they've been updated as best they can, but they're still a little iffy in some places. Just this looked not quite crazy IndyCar speed to me, but that's based off of looking at one photo, man. So don't take any of that seriously. Last thing here, Hankster Hanksters 500 from Reddit. Hey, Marshall, longtime listener. First time submitter. Awesome. I love it. Please keep doing it, y'all. Says, I must admit that I am an idiot. Well, that's you and I share the same admission. And while I've been a racing fan for 30 of my 32 years on this earth, I know next to nothing about racing engines and what makes them sound a certain way. Well, I try not to live in the past, and I know things are always evolving. I must admit that I pine for the eras of badass sounding race cars watching old cart and f1 races from the 90s and 2000s makes me wish for the days when the cars would scream down the straights my question to you is do you ever see cars that sounded like those eras returning and if so how can it be accomplished because i know the v12 and v10 days are most likely behind us forever but could they revert to v8s and have them turn crazy rpms says, to quote the fastest man ever to do it, Gilles Deferrin, IndyCar should be beasts. And closes kindly by saying, hope you and Mrs. P are doing well this holiday season. Cheers! Hengsters 500, thank you for sending this in. And I love it when we get uh, long-time first-times who write in here. So, I wish. 
Um, just a little quick thing here. So the sounds of the current motors, the Chevy, Lotus, and Honda, when they debuted in 2012, they did all sound very different. And they still sound a little bit different, knowing that we've just had Honda and Lotus, kidding, Honda and Chevy since 2013. You can pick them out, kind of, sort of, if you're really trying. Uh, if you're not just in a huge wall of sound with 10 cars going by at the same time. But, you know, you can pick them out. Uh, if we're talking qualifying, for example, as so we go back uh, to the why does everybody rush out at once, you know, if we're talking knockout qualifying, Firestone Fast 12, and, you know, drivers are going out trying to find a little bit of space, you can close your eyes. If you observe and fit, know what you're hearing, you can close your eyes and go Chevy, Honda, and got it but they don't sound amazing. And where I just find this interesting, Hengsters 500, is we've had a lot of twin-turbo V6s in racing of late. It's been a fairly popular layout. So I know in IndyCar, it's a fully 100% custom 2.2-liter motor, no road car carryover at all. Look to sports cars primarily, we've had a ton of, of TTV6s, the Ford EcoBoost, the fartiest sounding thing ever, three and a half liter twin turbo V6. Nissan, out of their GTRs, right? Uh, same, th- what, 3.8 liter twin turbo V6. And run down the line. There's been a number of them. Um, none of them sound great. I like it, but I know that the feedback that I hear from a lot of fans, eh doesn't really do a whole bunch for me got it cool no problem um but i would say if you go back to mid 80s particularly mm, 85 86 really i think 85 is probably about the peak the revs went up as we went through 1988 with these 1.5 liter uh, turbocharged motors and there were inline fours there were v8s there you know there were there was variety there but if i'm just talking the the twin turbo v6 is honda in particular uh boy those things revved to twelve thousand, some a little bit more which is about what we rev to right now but it was giant amounts of boost and fuel that you wouldn't call it rocket fuel because that would be lightweight like just stuff where you go if you get a drop of it on your hand it's going to burn right through to and you're not going to have an arm left um compression crazy everything crazy it's they sounded like rolling explosions and as someone who has a lot of old f1 audio cds tucked away the mid 80s ones are just like my god so making a lot more power putting a lot more boost through revving i don't know if it was so much more than we do right now but the speed at which those things accelerated and when the boost hit, keep in mind there was a lot of turbo lag back then, but when it hit, it was just zoop, zoop, 
just crazy how fast these motors pulled to rev line and you you could hear the ferocity and the kind of scary back to the Gilles de Ferrand beast mode so it's possible for a twin turbo v6 to be absolutely fierce in the kind of sounds that they put out um just with this current formula we aren't killing the things with crazy amounts boost they do certainly rev to about 12,000 rpm but it's kind of silky it's kind of smooth they you know they're jewels precision jewels that rev quickly and do all kinds of great things but none of it happens in a particularly explosive evocative duck for cover because it sounds like someone just set off a thousand pound bomb that went by that's the difference and these motors why well these motors have to live 2000 or so miles at least the f1 motors yeah (laughs) could you get me 200 miles please maybe could we maybe get to the end of the race you're throwing something else so vastly different budgets vastly different needs so i just share this because could the current motors and whatnot produce that beastly oh my god run for cover it could they could you name it but the costs to do that um i think they are a bit too far for anything close to what indycar teams could afford uh, manufacturers etc so yeah um that's where we're at there uh to your point i, I can't really see a lot of things returning i mean a, a v8 turbo we'd love for the sound standpoint I can't think of any auto manufacturer involved in the series who would sign off on that. That doesn't fit what they're trying to promote. Last thing here, I'll just say in terms of possibilities. Maybe with a slightly bigger 2.4 liter motor, maybe with a little bit more metal, a little bit more robust. I'm telling you, I think if they could get the things up to 13.5, 14,000 RPMs, it'd be a very different experience listening to them and i think a lot more people would be happy and thrilled there's a negative to it though and it's the what's the most expensive thing to make when you're making motors it's rpms Uh, you want to get up into that higher register of sound through rpm oh boy that's when you start breaking a bunch of stuff that was okay at 12 but no longer at 13, 13, 5, 14. And so the money through R&D and then the costs to build the more robust pieces, you know, those come with a crazy price tag. So it may have already been decided. I don't know, and I may have forgotten Hengster's 500, but I have a feeling that we might not be seeing much more than 12K when it comes to RPMs with the next motor. All right, that is our episode. I know that we have some stuff about the Long Beach Grand Prix coming up uh, in part two. Uh, I filed a story today slash tonight uh, about the Long Beach Grand Prix, so that might be um, 
Might be worth reading before we get to the next episode. And other than that, thank you to y'all. Uh, really appreciate you and what uh, you bring to me each week with this fun little gathering that we have. Uh, Justice Brothers, thank you. TorontoMotorsports.com, thank you. Bell Racing Helmets USA, thank you. And who else do we say thank you to? Cooper Tires, the fine folks, the fine folks who make the road to Indy go round and round and round and produce those young champions we love who are slowly but surely taking over the series. I'll speak to you here in a couple days. And hey, we got Colton Herta coming up as our guest Wednesday morning. 